Well, good morning. How are you this morning? Everybody's like, the Lord be with you. See, that's better. It's just nice. You know, it's nice. Good to see you. Uh, Welcome to the birth of New Life East. Big thanks to all of you who made that happen and worked so hard to pull that off. Such a good thing. If this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor of New Life East. Yeah, and we're delighted to have you with us. If this is your first time to anything New Life related, how do I summarize New Life? Well, that is a good start. I like that a lot. Uh, we passionately believe in Jesus. Jesus is raised from the dead. God's impossible yes to our lives. And that means that all bets are off. All bets are off. We've been around Colorado Springs for 35 years or so, seven congregations worshiping around the city. So this is our newest one. And uh, we worship on Sundays and we connect throughout the week and we serve in the city and serve one another. And now you know everything and all the good stuff happens between all of that. So we're delighted to have you. Like Pastor Colin said, if this is your first time here, uh, see us at Connect Central after the service. We'd love to meet you. Stick around. Meet some new lifers. I'm telling you, these are the kindest people on planet Earth. They're just really nice people. So you're going to enjoy getting to know folks here. We hope this turns into a great church family for you. Sound good? We're in the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah has four chapters, so we're going to cover it in four weeks. Uh, Jonah was a prophet who seemed to prophesy somewhere around the 8th century B.C. or so. This book, scholars think, was probably written a couple hundred years after. It was a way of reflecting theologically on the person of Jonah in light of the people's current situation, which I'll talk about a little bit more next week. But it's Jonah chapter 4. It's a beautiful book, and I'm looking forward to preaching it to you this morning. Before we get there, let's just pause for a word of prayer. The psalmist said, Whom have I in heaven but you, O God? And the earth has nothing that we desire besides you. And our flesh and our heart may fail us. But God is the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be. Would you just begin here now to lift your heart up to heaven and receive his goodness and his mercy and his love and say, Hallowed be his name. Hallowed be his name. The first and the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. And the second is like unto it, to love our neighbors as ourselves. We pray this morning, O God, that the pure love of God would reach down inside of us and transform us. That you would burn away all lesser loves And that you would elevate our whole being, our whole life, all that we are and all that we have to the level of the kingdom this morning. Granted, help us love you with all that we are and all that we have. And help us love the world around us as we love ourselves. And even more, help us love the world as you love the world. Help us step into that this morning. We're asking that the scripture, that it would break with fresh light that it would break like fresh bread, that it would break with fresh insight, and that wherever we are this morning, that we would find that God has spoken to us and called us into his kingdom and glory. So do that, we pray this morning. We're asking, may the words of our mouths 
and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Literally, it's come up before my face. But Jonah, well, Jonah didn't listen, did he? Jonah ran away from before the face of the Lord and he headed for Tarshish. And he went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for the port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish in order to, what does it say? Yeah, I need you to talk to me this morning. Oh, we don't have it up there, do we? Sorry. Okay, you're listening. In order to flee from the Lord. And then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. And the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and he fell into a deep sleep. The kind of sleep that only a rebel can sleep. And the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. And so they cast lots and the lot, of course, it fell to Jonah. And so they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? You know, where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And this scared the living daylights out of them. And they asked, what is it that you have done? And they knew that he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. Then the sea was getting rougher and rougher. And so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up, he says, and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. This sounds really self-sacrificing. It's really actually kind of self-serving as we're going to see as the narrative progresses. Instead, these pagan men who don't really know Yahweh, they act righteously here. Look at them. They did their best to row back to the land, but they couldn't because the sea grew wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you please. And then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. And at this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows to him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said, thanks be to God. Welcome to the launch of New Life East, a weird text. A rebellious Israelite offers to be thrown overboard and the pagans come to him. What are we even talking about here, right? Jonah chapter one. I actually kind of love it. I love the weird places in the Bible, the places that force you to think a little bit. Jonah 1 begins where everything should and must and indeed does begin. Jonah 1.1, the word of the Lord came. Everything begins in the speech of God. When God speaks, things go into motion. And so you remember the great text of Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, 
let there be light, and there was light. Some ancient Near Eastern cultures, the way that they thought about the creation of the heavens and earth was that a great battle took place in the heaven. Heavenly blood was spilled in some way. And that's not how it is. In the biblical mind, God doesn't have to get in a fight with anybody to accomplish his purposes, okay? It's literally no contest with our God. So God rises up and God speaks and things go into motion. And so the psalmist said, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Whenever God wants to get anything done, he simply speaks, he talks. God's word is a thing, it does things. And when God puts not just creational history, but when God puts salvation history in motion, he also does it by the word of his mouth. Think about Genesis chapter 12. There's chaos everywhere, rebellion everywhere, wickedness everywhere. And in Genesis 12, God speaks. He calls Abraham, leave your family and your father's household and the land that's familiar to you and go to the place that I will show you. I will make you, the Lord says to Abraham, into a great nation. You will be great. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse and all the nations of the earth will be blessed because of you. Why? Because God spoke to Abraham. And when God spoke, things go into motion. Think about Exodus chapter 3. The people of God are enslaved in Egypt. Their lives are being literally devoured by Egypt. And when God decides to rescue his people, what does he do? He speaks. He talks to Moses. Moses, he says, I have indeed seen the suffering of my people. And I've heard their groaning and their cries. It has come up before me into my ears. It has entered into my heart and I'm moved with concern for them. He says, so get up and go. You're going to deliver them out of Egypt. When God wants to get things done, he, he speaks. This is what he does with all the prophets of Israel and the people of God. A wayward, wandering away from God in sin and rebellion. God will raise up prophets and he puts his word on their lips. And as they speak it, his will goes into motion. And Jonah really is styled as a prophet after the typical Old Testament prophets of Israel. But there is one key difference, and it comes in verse 2. The Lord says, go to the great city of... He's going to Nineveh. He's going to Nineveh. Now, that may not mean a lot to you and to me, living in the 21st century United States of America, we're 2,500, 2,600, 2,700 years removed from the might of Nineveh. But nobody in Israel reading this text or hearing this story for the first time could fail to have their ears perked up at the announcement of the name of Nineveh. Nineveh is not an Israelite city. Mostly the prophets of Israel are sent to Israel. This prophet of Israel is sent to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the great nation of Assyria, which emerged in the 9th century, some facts about Assyria, emerged in the 9th century BC as the world's first true empire, not just sort of a collection of tribes, but a real global superpower. Their goal, as is stated in their records, was to conquer and subdue the entire known world. They boasted the first professional military, so not just a little militia, but like a first massive standing army. And they actually took pride in their brutal military tax tactics. They boasted about maiming their enemies, decapitating their enemies, 
skinning, burning them alive, and impaling their enemies. Welcome to New Life East. This is the launch of our first. We're a positive and encouraging church. But some of the most inhumane forms of torture that the world had ever seen and has ever seen, the Assyrians perfected them. They were not just mildly evil. The Assyrians were out and out evil and had a reputation for so being. Eventually, the Assyrians actually conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. So this text, Jonah, that's written after that event is looking back on that and they remember, okay? They remember what happened to their dads and their moms, their great granddads and great grandmoms and uncles and aunts. They heard the stories about the brutality of Assyria and what Assyria did to them. Assyria was so evil that it figured largely in a lot of the prophetic literature. Listen to Nahum. Nahum, who prophesied during the rise of Assyria, said this, Nahum 3.1. He said, woe to the city of blood. That's how he talks about Assyria, Nineveh. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. Nahum 3.19. He says, nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. Like Assyria is that wicked. Nineveh is that evil. That Nahum looks into the future and he sees a moment when that great city would fall to the ground and he says, listen man, when that happens to you, nobody's going to be going, ah, what a bummer. Man, I just loved Nineveh, the architecture and the people are so kind. Nobody's doing that. Like when Assyria falls, when Nineveh falls, the world throws a party. That was how people, people felt about Assyria. Nahum says that the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. In Nahum's imagination, the triumph of God, the vindication of God's people, the deliverance of that whole region looked like the fall of Nineveh. Because they were that evil. They were that despicable. They were that wicked straight to the core. And so when the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and the word says to him, go and preach to Nineveh, what do you think Jonah felt? At a minimum, Jonah felt incredible fear. Like, wait, 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 hold on, time out, time out. This is the most cruel group of people the world has ever seen, God. And you know what they've done. You know what they've done to all the nations around us. And you know what they've done to some of our aunts and uncles and moms and dads. We know about Nineveh. We know about how Nineveh skins people alive and sheds blood wantonly. We know about their brutality. And you're asking me to go to them? The scripture actually says that Jonah's message to them is not, by the way, it's not a message of like, hey, God loves you and has a nice plan for your life. But Jonah's message to Nineveh, like when Jonah comes knocking on Nineveh's door, Jonah is saying, hey, just so you know, God's got it out for you. You're going to fall. The city's going to fall. The wickedness has come up before God as a stench in his nostrils. And God has not been blind to what you've been doing. He's coming after you. 
How is that going to be received by the Ninevites? You know, as an analogy to that, you might think of what it might be like, might have been like, for a rabbi living in 1941 in Berlin, Germany. Standing in the middle of the city square and saying, Hey, listen, all of you. All of you who have given your lives to the Third Reich. All of you who have signed up for the blood and soil of Germany. You better understand that judgment is on the way. How do you think that's going to be received? Not very well. And so maybe you can understand some of Jonah's fear and trepidation. Maybe you can understand why Jonah decided when he heard the word of the Lord that the best thing for him to do was to hightail it as far in the opposite direction as he could possibly get. Jonah's scared, witless, and rightfully so about what will happen when he starts preaching. That's the first thing I think that's going on with Jonah. But the second thing, and I think maybe deeper than that, is that Jonah somewhere deep in his Israelite soul must have known that there was at least an outside possibility that if he begins preaching repentance and judgment to the Ninevites, that the Ninevites what? That they actually do repent. (laughs) That the great city turns around. That some within Nineveh recognize the evil that they've done and they turn back to the Lord in repentance, in heartbrokenness. And Jonah knows something about God. Jonah knows that the Lord is the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Jonah knows that God is a merciful and forgiving God. Jonah knows that God is the God whose mercies are new every morning, whose compassions never fail. And because of his great love, we are not consumed. And what Jonah knows is that there is at least an outside possibility that if the Ninevites repent, God will welcome them. That the people that he hated most and feared the most and despised the most would somehow be brought under the canopy of the mercy of God. And if the Ninevites got brought near to the mercy of God, if God opens his arms to the Ninevites, then that would mean that Jonah has to open his arms to the Ninevites as well. And I'm just a little bit suspicious that in Jonah's heart, there were few things more repugnant than that idea. What happens when you find out that God is passionately in love with and merciful towards the person that you hate the most. What happens then? We're just going to have to get used to it, brothers and sisters. Being God's people is often risky and almost always an uncomfortable affair. Can I get an amen this morning? (laughs) I'm afraid for us, man. I'm afraid for us that we have so Americanized the gospel that we have forgotten this. Our idea of the good news of Jesus is that Jesus just wants to give you all of your best hopes and all of your best dreams and all of your best wishes and existential bliss in the sweet by and by as well. So our idea of the dream of God for our lives is that we'd have a nice house with a white picket fence And nice kids who go to nice schools and we drive nice cars 
And we have a nice job that provides nice opportunities for us to have a nice career. And then in those times that I'm feeling a little bit of existential angst about this, that, or the other thing, I get a nice God who fills me with nice feelings and everything is just so nice. And we're dying of niceness. We're dying of niceness. The dream of God is not to yank us into niceness. Nor is the dream of God to tuck himself as a little religious trinket into our lives. Or to be sort of magical God dust on our lives that makes our lives like miracle grow for a life that's already, you know, put together. Ooh, I added God to a life and it was like good. (laughs) It just doesn't work that way. (laughs) To get tangled up with the God made known in Israel and the God later made known in Jesus is to be drawn up into an adventure that is always risky and almost always uncomfortable. Listen to this text from Luke chapter 9, one of my favorite moments in the Gospels. The scripture says that as they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Like, hey man, we've seen the miracles and the signs and the wonders and your teaching is so magnetic. Plus you're just a cool guy. I kind of like being around you, Jesus, right? I will follow you, he says, wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So is that a yes or? <laughs> like, can I, can I come with you or not? And he said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Wait, what? Shall we go and bury my dad? No, but there's like this sense of urgency. With Jesus, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you. Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, nobody, puts a hand to, nobody who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. But didn't you see what Jesus calls us into? The life that he invites us into is a life that is a risky life. It's a life that's full of adventure, a life that's full of surprise. A life, brothers and sisters, where we are not promised anything other than the ongoing abiding presence of God to us. He makes no guarantees that everything's going to just turn out hunky-dory. And this idea of the American gospel, that we can just tuck a nice God into a nice life, is blasphemy. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is if anybody would follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus didn't die on the cross to save us from crosses. He died on the cross to save us from sin and death. And having been so saved from sin and death, we will find ourselves hung up on many crosses as we follow him. I'm not getting a ton of amens this morning. Somebody please testify for me that you believe this too. We'll be hung up on many crosses. The life of following Jesus is a life of ongoing martyrdom. And unless we realize that, we will miss the entire importance of the gospel. Do you, do you like understand the fact that like look around in this room, like the reason that we are here is because people took risks and made sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. The gospel was not some inexorable, inevitable 
march of niceness that got us to the 21st century. The gospel was people deciding to preach in hard places and go to difficult scenarios and preach to people and in places that they did not want to go to in spite of great opposition and great risk, which is why Tertullian said, and every time they did that, the gospel found this way of expanding and growing even when there was imperial persecution, even when the world, the flesh, and the devil clamped its jaws around them. Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the very seat of the church. The world is won through risk. The world is won through that kind of gutsiness. The world is won through sacrifice. The world is won through all those things. This church that's been here for 35 years was not an inevitable march of awesomeness. The enemy throwing everything that he could against this move of God. And there have been a million little martyrdoms inside this community that have made this moment possible. And to say yes to the God made known in Jesus is to sign up for a life of that. This is how the world is one. This is how the world is one. Brothers and sisters, we are here at all because of an unquantifiable number of risks taken up by faithful men and women of God down through the ages. And it's Jonah's understanding that the call comes with risk that causes him to flee, run in the other direction. We don't want this. What we want is something that's easier. What we want is something that's nicer. But I'm telling you, I am not old, but I'm not young either. I'm turning 39 this summer. I've been following Jesus my whole life. And there have been so many times where I thought, Lord, so now, now, surely we've sacrificed enough for you. Surely we've given up enough for you. Surely now we get to graduate into some sphere where we can just kind of coast to glory. And if that's your belief this morning, then I have terrible and wonderful news for you. The adventure is just beginning. The adventure is just beginning. And maybe there are some of you that are here this morning and your faith has grown stale and it has grown cold and it has grown rote and routine and wearisome to you. I want to submit to you that it's just possible that there are risks that God has, calling you, has been calling you into that you've said no to. And because of that, staleness is everywhere. Break through the staleness. Say yes to Jesus again. So I think it's the danger that makes Jonah run in the other direction. But I think it's more than just the danger. I think it's that thought that God might have mercy on the Assyrians, on the Ninevites, that is repugnant to Jonah's Hebrew soul. And this is a thing that you and I have to wrestle to the ground. One of the great authors of our day, Anne Lamott, put it like this. She said that you know, you can safely assume that you have now, I'm going to meddle just a little bit this morning. I hope you'll permit me that. You can safely assume that you have created a God in your own image when it turns out that, <laughs> that God hates all the same people that you do. Amen. Let's go to communion. <laughs> when God hates all the same people that you do. See, that was Jonah's problem. In Jonah's mind, 
in Jonah's heart, God had it out for the Assyrians. And God would have loved nothing more than to see the great city of Nineveh fall into the heart of the sea. And when Jonah hears the word of the Lord come to him, and he knows that contingent upon that announcement of judgment is the possibility of repentance, what Jonah has to contemplate is the fact that God might just love Nineveh the same way that God loves Israel. And that until he gets on the same page with that, he is not yet running with the God of Israel. So Jonah decides to run away from the God of Israel. Tim Keller makes this assessment of Jonah that I think is just so fabulous. He says that Jonah had a spiritually shallow identity. In other words, Jonah's understanding of the work of God was skin deep. And you notice it when Jonah's on the ship with the sailors. They say, hey, tell us about yourself. Who are you? And he doesn't lead by saying that he's a worshiper of Yahweh. He doesn't lead by talking about the many things that Yahweh has brought his people through. He doesn't lead with anything about God. What does Jonah say? He says, oh me, I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew. And for Jonah, it was his ethnicity, where he came from, that was his badge of acceptance. And it might not be ethnicity for you, but for many of us, our religious identity is only skin deep as well. It hasn't penetrated to the innermost. So what we more define ourselves by are outward things like that. Ethnicity. I'm white, I'm black, I'm brown, I'm Asian, I'm Hispanic. We define ourselves mostly by that. And it creates antagonisms. We define ourselves by our political identities, red or blue. We define ourselves by where we're at on the socioeconomic chain how much money we make, what kind of car we drive. We define ourselves by where in the country we were born. We define ourselves by our little sort of silo of what we deem to be proper theological beliefs. And we look down on those that don't hold those beliefs. I'm telling you that if and when you do that, you can be sure that you're worshiping an idol. That the God of Israel and his mercy and his identity has not yet penetrated to the uttermost. When you see yourself as better than other people. And when it turns out, as Lamahat says, that your God stamps his approval upon your hatred of others. You are serving an idol. The living God of heaven and earth is not the God of one tribe. And he is not the God of one people. And he is not the God of one persuasion or another. But he is the God. God of all the earth. And to know him is to know that. Paul said in Romans 1, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. First for the, and then for the. Now, if you don't know anything about Jews and Gentiles in the biblical imagination, that's just everybody. And Paul says that the gospel that has come is a gospel in which God has flung open the doors of his mercy to any and all who want a taste of it. And it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter which side of the tracks you grew up on. You belong here. But that's the whole announcement of the gospel. Paul writes later in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6. He says that the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Do you understand that the dream of God is that one day Israelites and Assyrians will worship side by side 
in the adoration of the God of Israel. And this, Paul says, has been made possible in Jesus the Lord. That is what we sign up for. That is what we sign up for. When we sign up to follow the God who has been made known in Jesus. That's what's so beautiful about the life of a man like Martin Luther King Jr. All that he did, the work that he put in, the lecturing and the speaking and the organizing that he did was not just about one group of people. If you read the letters and you listen to the speeches, what you hear beating inside of Dr. King's chest is the lub-dub of the gospel. That it wasn't just about equality for black people, but it was about what he called the beloved community. And when he invokes the beloved community, brothers and sisters, he's invoking the prophetic dream. That all human beings would be gathered together up under the worship of God. And so he says the famous I have a dream speech. He says that one day it'll be all people liberated from all fears and all antagonisms. And every wall will have fallen down. And together they will sing in the words of the old spiritual free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty. We are free at last. Guys. By the work of the Holy Spirit, God is doing that even now. The church is not a country club for like-minded people. The church is a foretaste of the new humanity. It's a foretaste of the new humanity. And now as we begin to prepare our hearts for communion, I want to just say one final thing to you. See, the gospel is embedded in Jonah. But it's not where we think. I've born and raised in church. And so I've heard Jonah talked about all of my life. And I've heard Jonah preach and all of that. And you know when you hear Jonah preach, often the message that you get is, uh, hey, Jonah's kind of a big idiot, isn't he? Don't be like Jonah when you grow up. But that's not actually the message of Jonah. We hear about Jonah, that Jonah runs from the Lord he boards the ship and he's sailing to Tarshish. He's trying to get as far away from God as he can. The sailors figure out that he's responsible. He offers himself to be sacrificed. He's thrown into the ocean. The scripture says, we'll learn next week, that God provides a fish to swallow up Jonah. God has a plan for how he's going to work out his purposes in Jonah's life despite Jonah's rebellion. But I want you to look with me at verse 16. Check this out. That as soon as they throw Jonah overboard, next verse says that the men, these pagan men, greatly feared the Lord. <laughs> this is so good. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows to him. Listen, guys. Jonah disobeys God and revival still breaks out on the deck of the ship. Because God's just like that. Paul will later say that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. You can run, but you can't hide. God is going to get the sailors on that ship. God is going to get Nineveh. And God is going to get Jonah in the process. The great good news of the book of Jonah is not that if we try really hard, we can be better than Jonah. The great good news of Jonah is that we all are Jonah. And the joke is on us. God's coming to find us.